Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The sudden arrival of generative AI, large language models like ChatGPT or Google's Bard, as well as the proliferation of image, video, and audio AI, certainly feels, at least from where I sit, like a technological step change just from a few a few months ago, really. As, as we've talked about on previous shows, Chinese AI researchers were astonished at what they saw once OpenAI took the wraps off of ChatGPT a few months ago. And, and when some Chinese companies hurriedly released their own LLMs, uh, reviewers, for the most part, agreed that they were not quite ready for prime time. All this really lit a fire to China's AI scientists and researchers, whether in tech companies or, or in research institutes. Uh, the fact that the draft of the initial regulations governing generative AI, something that we talked about on the show a few months ago, uh, had their most onerous and potentially cumbersome requirements actually stripped out of them before the actual regulations were introduced it shows that, that Beijing recognizes the importance of this technology and wants, at the very least, to avoid hobbling its domestic companies before they even get out of the starting gate. But will China's heavy-handed internet censorship hamper its development? Uh, and, and what about U.S. efforts to keep the cutting-edge GPUs, the graphics processing units, or the NPUs, the neural processing units, out of Chinese hands? With me to talk about the state of play in Chinese generative AI is Paul Triolo, Senior VP for China and Technology Policy Lead at Denton's Global Advisors, ASG, formerly and probably better still known as Albright Stonebridge Group. He spent a full 
quarter century as a research analyst for the U.S. government at a certain three-letter agency, and he contributes frequently to the China Project, where he writes on all sorts of technology issues pertaining to China, for which we are very grateful. Paul joins us from Washington, D.C. Paul, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you, Geyser. I'm happy to be back. Yeah. Uh, well, the last time I saw you was actually just a few weeks ago in D.C., and you were leaving the very next morning for China. So tell us just in a nutshell, how was that trip? It was a great trip, Kaiser, and it was uh, it was largely client-focused, but I managed to find time to discuss these, this issue of generative AI with some of the leading Chinese companies that are developing uh, their own large language models but and have been doing a lot in the AI space. Yeah, so that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you because, you know, you're fresh from there. You've had a lot of conversations with people across the AI community in China. So how did that community react to the unveiling of ChatGPT by OpenAI? Yeah, it's a good question. And it sort of hit two different pieces of the system, right? So it hit the the sort of enterprises in China that are developing these types of capabilities. So it's, you know, it wasn't a surprise because... The, the existence of transformers and large language models, of course, uh, is, is, had been well known in China, um, which is very plugged in. Chinese companies are very plugged in, and Chinese researchers to the global sort of AI community. So not, not unknown. I think they were surprised that, that a company like OpenAI decided to release this you know, to the public hmm. to sort of, you know, as an experiment. Right. Um, so there was some surprise that, that, that they were able to do that. That probably couldn't, have, couldn't happen in China in the same way. And then the regulators, I think, in China, too, also sort of forced into to respond to this, because I think up until that point, regulators were certainly aware of, of these developments, but they, they hadn't really uh, thought necessarily or had really galvanized uh, themselves to sort of figure out how to, how to regulate things like generative AI. And because of the content, I think it's important to note that, that it's because of the human interaction and the sort of text, not just text, but the sort of text and, 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 and image and multimodal kinds of generative AI models this becomes pretty quickly an issue that regulators um, are interested in trying to figure out how to get ahead of. Um, and I think that the release of ChatGPT certainly got the attention of both the AI community in China and, and that sort of alarmist way, like we better catch up and, because OpenAI has prepped ahead now in the development of this, these models. And also the regulators were thinking, um, okay, well, if this is going to be out there. We better figure out what to do about it, in particular because it's so focused on you know natural language processing in particular, and sort of human interaction yeah, of the yeah. part that is of concern to regulate. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. So can you talk broadly about what was on the minds of the technologists you spoke with? I mean, are they, are they smarting over the October 7th announcement? Are, are they uh, really, really worried? We'll, we'll talk a little bit you know, more about the, the GPU issue. Uh, but but are, are they obsessed with, with generative AI, or what's top of mind for them? Well, you know, I mean, I think it's important to just step back quickly and note that, you know, since 2017, 2018, when China came out with the National AI Development Plan, for example, AI has not been sort of a new thing for Chinese technology companies. I mean, going back a decade, Chinese companies have been tracking the cutting edge developments around the world. And uh, I think in China, the emphasis has been much more on on sort of business and practical implications of AI. Right. Um, and so when I did a paper with Kai-Fu Lee, for example, in 2017, that previewed his book, AI Superpowers, we focused on different types of AI, like, you know, perception AI, internet AI, recommendation algorithms, and, and logistics, and then sort of autonomous AI, these four sectors. We didn't, at that time, of course, include things like generative AI. So I think that, you know, AI, companies in China have been very focused and foresighted on 
uh, continued to develop very practical applications for AI, you know, over the past five years. Generative AI sort of injects this new, um, this new wrinkle um, in, into the into the game because it has implications in terms of um, you know increased productivity and sort of um, all these areas that people are have held out hope for um, uh, for, for for you know faster processing of, of, of text on languages and assisting uh, and things like code generation, which is a huge potential application that's already being used for generative AI. So generative AI sort of changes the game a little bit because it it introduces new business models and new areas where AI can be applied. Um, and so, you know, Chinese companies are, are again, are, are very plugged into sort of the, the directionality of the AI um, uh, development process. And so they, of course, were already looking very, very, very hard at things like transformers and, and, and then the, uh, the, the large lights model built on those transformers. Um, and so I think they, they were, again, not, not surprised, but their, their focus is, has been a little different than, than that of um, companies in the U.S. like OpenAI in particular, and then all the other many companies that are now focused on generating large language models and, and applying them in, in various industry verticals. Uh, they're, they're probably more than any other country and more than any other AI community are really plugged in to what's going on and tracking uh, the developments and trying to take advantage of um, sort of the state of the art. I don't think there's any doubt that in China right now, you know, the flavor of the month is generative AI, right? Uh, but there, right. there are, of course, as you say, you know, all these other approaches and some yep. of which, you know, China had made real headway in. Uh, and some of these are, are, are continuing to yield major breakthroughs. I, I think it's important that we at least talk a little bit about those. Talk about what, what some of these, these other areas are. Is there concern that these things might get crowded out due to the interest, you know, in LLMs and, and other, you know, generative AI? I mean, you know, I think we, we were talking the other day about things like, Alpha fold, you know, that Google DeepMind is, done. I mean, these are, you know, deep reinforcement learning based AI platforms. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and the promise that that holds out? Yeah. I mean, and of course, the one of the big factors that drove the, that national AI development strategy, for example, released in 2017 was this concern over Go and, and AlphaGo and the, the perception that, you know, Western companies like Google DeepMind were, were you know, leading in these areas and had developed these amazing capabilities using, again, deep reinforcement learning, since this is sort of the, the, the process that led to something like AlphaFold, which is this very specialized AI capability designed to predict, you know, the shape of proteins. It has very, very specific and very useful end use. And so I think Chinese companies have also been looking at those kinds of applications across things like healthcare, obviously, and, you know, drug discovery and those kinds of areas. So I think right. was, that kind of interest is still there. Generative AI, though, has obviously now, as you know, gobbled up a lot of sort of uh, attention and, and investment, in part because it is a broader general purpose capability. And that's, of course, what, what generates a lot of the concern is that it, it is designed to, to sort of eventually lead to some sort of uh, artificial general intelligence. And, and this seems closer to that than something like AlphaGo or AlphaFold, which are very narrow applications uh, to gaming, for example, and to things like uh, protein. Uh, prediction. So generative AI sort of generates a lot of fear in some sense about things like, hey, we're going to get eventually to something that's smarter than humans. And um, and that's generated that huge debate in the U.S. about, you know, whether there's a there's a sort of existential threat from AI. In the U.S., in the U.S. that certainly has been. But what about in China? Yeah, I think in China that that, that debate hasn't been as, as, as sort of public. One of the issues is that I think in China, you know, the, the tech companies have, have sort of led the development of this. There isn't this huge independent AI safety community of, of the type that has developed 
in the US and in Europe, you know, around looking at regulation and worried about all these downsides of AI, like bias and um, and disinformation and these other other areas. I think in China, the, the tendency has been to see technology in general and AI as beneficial. And so to look, to emphasize more the beneficial aspect, the potential you know, gains from deploying AI applications, where in the West, we have this very big and large and growing community that's focused on safety and ensuring that AI is deployed in you know, fair and and in equitable ways. And so in China, that there's not this rush to think about the existential threats. They're very, the companies are very focused, for example, on, you know, real earn, earning uh, revenue using these AI applications, whether it's with logistics or other things we've talked about. And then generative AI is also, it falls into that category of, hey, here's a new tool. We can use this to help develop uh, specific applications and, 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 you know, that will be useful to companies. And so they haven't leaped to the, to the, to the sort of existential risks as we saw in the last few months in the U.S. with these various documents coming out um, and people signing off letters, various letters that call for um, concern about you know this potential threat, existential threat from AI. So so far, no Chinese Eliezer Yudkowsky has emerged. No, that's a good question. There, <laughs> there was one professor, uh, uh, I think from Jinghua, who signed onto one of the letters. But no, there's no there's no sort of um, there's not, not the debate you have in the West where the fathers of, of AI, for example, Yan LeCun, Meta, yeah. um, Jeff Hinton, you know, and, and, and Yasha Bengio, they have been part of this huge debate over the last particularly six months about the downsides in, on, on both sides of the topic. And in China, again, it's China has been the Chinese companies and the Chinese AI community has been sort of more focused on, on basic research and on, on application. Well, as I've said many times, China is in its Star Trek phase, and we're in our Black Mirror phase already. So, yeah, that's how it goes. So, as you know, the regulations on generative AI were officially promulgated uh, just, I guess, about a month or so ago uh, after a comment period on the initial draft regs. Uh, I, I talked about this, as I said briefly on the show with Jeremy Dom, you know, after it came out. But we were, you know, the, that show was about something else entirely, and so we just sort of flicked at it. But let me let me just summarize quickly what Jeremy said because you know he studied this stuff very very carefully. First, he said overall they are much less stringent than what was laid out in the draft. And they appear to have backed down on certain requirements uh, with the aim, you know, specifically of, of, of allowing the new industry to really develop and flourish. Uh, service providers no longer need to guarantee the truth, so, so to speak, of, of either the generated content or even of the underlying data, uh, which, you know, was supposed to be that the training data was supposed to actually be sort of combed over for truth. That was obviously a, a major hurdle and was, you know, basically impossible. So I imagine the developer community is pretty happy about that change. Um, they also added, you know, to, to this point about concern over safety. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to see this is coming from the CAC itself. Uh, categories of discrimination, they, you know, there's language in there about bias, but they've, they've added more categories of, of people that are, they're worried may be discriminated against, including people, you know, with uh, dis- disabilities. And perhaps most importantly, I think maybe they made these new regulations apply only to the public-facing right. platforms, right? The public-facing generative right. AI. So it doesn't apply to, to systems that are purpose-built just yeah. for an enterprise or within even like an industry vertical. Right, and that's critical. Yeah, yeah absolutely critical. So with all that as background, when you spoke with AI researchers in China during mm-hmm. your trip, um, did you get a sense of whether they felt like their feedback had 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 helped to bring about this yeah. this change or did they talk about yeah. the AI regs and whether they still need to be tweaked 
Yeah, I talked with a, a, a lot of people about this. I think it's important to note that when they work it out, they were they, they're still termed interim regulations. So right. part of the the game here, right, is that the the, the the content regulator here, which is really putting out these regulations, the Cyberspace Administration of China, is very, very focused on the content part of it. And they're still trying to figure out what to do about all this, right? So the Chinese approach is interesting. And we can talk about the comparison to the, what the EU and the US are doing. It's quite different. You know, the regulators in China tend to want to get out in front of this quickly. And so that's what they've done. So they have why they issued these draft regulations in, in April and you know, quickly um, turned them around into these interim regs. And yes, the industry had a huge input on this. I talked to a lot of people, Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, all the all the key the key players, um, all the key sort of research institutes, the, the Beijing Academy of Artificial Intelligence, all these all the major big players in sort of LLMs and generative AI in China absolutely weighed in on those on those draft regs. And now they once they came out, they were really calling them something like a light touch regulation hmm. um, because of those things you mentioned that they roll back a lot of the provisions. Um, for example, another one that, that was important was they had talked about needing to turn around and like redo the model if there was a if there was a, a problem detected with the content that was sort of you know, politically incorrect. Um, and they dropped the they dropped the two month or three month turnaround on that because that was considered by industry to be sort of wildly um, unreasonable, right? Because it takes time to train these models and to and to do things like um, you know reinforcement learning through human feedback, which is which is an effort to put guardrails on this. But I think it's important to notice that as you said. The, the, the thrust of those regulations were really for this public-facing sort of applications of these models. And that's not where the Chinese companies are focused. They're very much focused on these industry verticals, which I think, we can, and we can talk about each of the major players and where they are in that. But so, so therefore, they're, you know, they're less concerned, I would say, about the regulation than some of these other issues which we need to talk about, like U.S. export controls on GPUs, which is a huge issue uh, for the industry in general. But I think in general, people were happy with the process of feedback and the fact that CAC listened to industry concerns. Um, but again, these are interim regulations. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, there probably is more to come. And then last thing I'll mention is on that is cri- critically is yesterday, the, the, the TC260, which is the, the standard body, released some really interesting standards drafts related to things like watermarking, to actually watermark content mm-hmm. to make sure that it's clear what has been AI generated. Right. It's, it, it's a really thoughtful document if you read through it. It talks about two kinds of watermarks related to generative AI content. One is explicit, a sort of human visible thing, an audible message that, that would identify content as generated by you know, an AI large language model, for example, or image generator. And implicit, which would be a sort of watermark that humans can't see, but computers and machines can extract and sort of determine you know, the origin in that very practical uh, area, which which again is also under lots of discussion in other key areas in the U.S. and EU, for example, how do you how do you identify content that is uh, that is generated? China is is already sort of arguably well ahead in terms of at least attempting to put out these kinds of standards around this, and I think that might be, a, for example, an area of collaboration with the EU and the U.S. around some kind of a standard around how you do that. Because if yeah. you don't have an international standard on that, for example, it's going to be a mess, right? Because yeah, yeah, it's encouraging that there's some convergence on this on this on this issue at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think that kind of narrow techno that standard area is something hopefully where there could be more you know international convergence because it's so important going forward. And so that the generative AI interim regs talked about that, and then pretty quickly, and we're right about a month later. TC26 has come out with these these standards. So I think that's a really, it shows that, you know, huge commitment in the system 
to, to, to pursuing and, and flushing out these kinds of um, uh, standards and regulations. So while we're on the subject of, of the state, uh, aside from wanting to, you know, or being willing to clear some of the regulatory obstacles, or at least, you know, refrain from placing too many obstacles in, in their path, what else is the state doing to advance these companies' abilities to develop generative AI and to you know, conduct that kind of research in China? Uh, are they getting any kind of proactive state support? Yeah, I think that um, what you're seeing the state do is signal at many levels that this is a priority industry, right? And so Xi Jinping is, well, he, he makes comments on, on the importance of things like AI. And so over the last year in particular, and, you know, really arguably almost since the 2017, you know, issuance of this national strategy, it's clear that, that, the, that the government is very supportive of this industry and supports things like industry associations that are that are focused on AI. Different municipalities like Shanghai and others have all put out favorable guidance and regulations around elements of, of the AI technology stack. And so I think there's a general signal, you know, from the center that that this is this is something an area where Chinese companies should lead, right? And again, it's it's there's is this consideration that this, there are some low, lower barriers to entry here, except for the hardware. Uh, part of the stack, which we need to talk about. Um, but I think that generally the the regulations, and also there's a nod to this in the generative AI regulations, which is, you know, they're trying to clearly balance innovation and regulation here. And this is an area where, because there are so many capable Chinese companies in this space, there's a real desire specifically on generative AI to, to channel things into less sensitive areas like enterprise applications, manage the content piece through these regulations, and then provide things like compute capabilities. And so, for example, if you want, if you talk, I don't know if you had a show on the, the East Data West Compute project, which is a huge national effort to establish, a, a, you know, a series of data centers with advanced compute capabilities and make that available, for example, to companies to develop, you know, AI applications. And so, yeah, Kendra Schaefer flicked at that. Yeah. There are those kinds of very, very supportive projects, which, um, which are designed to sort of help fuel the industry. So I think the government around the industry is trying to build a sort of supportive uh, 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 framework and, and regulatory framework and and, and, uh, and encourage companies to, to use these applications and, and Chinese companies to be leaders in the space. And investors are usually very sensitive to these signals and, and they're aware of, you know, when the government has opened up a new funko, you know, a new kind of wind tunnel. And so they set their sails by those. And right. is that happening in this case? Are, is there a lot of investor money going into generative AI startups? It's a good question. I think it's also a tricky period, of course, generally in the Chinese economy in terms of investments and um, and sort of economic growth. Um, and, and and so I think there's, there, I think it, this, ironically, the sort of frenzy in AI, uh, interest in AI and generative AI is happening at a time of sort of economic downturn. So I think right now it's tricky because the big companies like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Huawei, you know, they, they have already have the resources to invest in these kinds of capabilities. And again, they're very expensive to invest in. It depends on what you're, what you're doing. But if you're trying to develop your own large language model, you need a lot of compute, you need data, and you need, you know, a lot of, a lot of a cloud interface, and you need a lot of, a lot of money to spend to actually train a model. I mean, I think the estimate was $300 million to train JetGPT or I believe. Yeah. It's a figure. And so, you know, we're talking big bucks to actually play in the game of large language models. So there's already sort of a limitation 
in terms of the type of company that can can do this. Um, I think in China you'll there will be investments in in companies with sort of niche pieces of, of the technology stack related to generative AI. But I, I don't think that there's been this huge massive influx um, into the into the space yet. I think in the U.S. you, you do see a lot more interest, for example, in second tier companies that are in beyond the sort of big players that are, but they're all very narrowly focused on certain areas like image generation, or in the case of a company like Bohere, uh, for AI, for example, they're very narrowly focused on uh, business applications and not, you know, large lines models for, for general purpose. It's a good question um, on the startups. I, I just haven't seen what I think is a huge flood, um, again, because some of these things are going to take big, big investments over long periods of time to play in the space. Right, right, right. The real barriers to entry. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I because finally, I think we should we get to you know U.S. policy and and the export bans on on advanced um, GPUs and and other chips that are used uh, in these large neural networks. I guess I, I want to start with uh, maybe you could you could sort of lay out where we are right now in terms of regulation. I mean, I know that um, you know you've been keeping up. On the other piece of the which, which is which is investment, ex, you know, outbound investment bans or or uh, into certain key areas, yeah, including yeah. into uh, in, in into generative AI, I believe. So give us give us a, a kind of précis of you know the, the the state of things right now in terms of U.S. policy. Sure, I think U.S. policy with respect to generative AI is coming down in sort of two big areas. So the first is is an attempt to target sort of advanced hardware, which is the, at the base of the technology stack for generating things like large language models. So that's the semiconductor, semiconductor base. Usually on top of that, you're running uh, models like uh, in development environments like PyTorch and TensorFlow. Um, and then on top of that, you're you're running specific training algorithms to train the large language models. And then you're, you know, finally you have, a, you have some end use. And so, but at the base of that is are, are things like advanced GPUs, which turn out to be ideal for training large language models, sort of parallel processing. And so, the U.S. last October began this effort to sort of control the ability of Chinese companies to have access to those parts of the hardware stack where, where U.S. companies frankly dominate, right, and where there are there are not a lot of right. other alternatives. And so, the, the the line from the administration is that this is narrowly focused on national security. So, you know, advances in AI are now considered uh, very much in the national security domain. Now, it's, it's tricky because in this arena, unlike, for example, export controls on weapons of mass destruction, where it's clear what the threat is, everybody understands that, you know, it's you want to control technologies that enable the development of nuclear weapons. AI is a little more nebulous here. What exactly is the sort of killer app, for example, that is going to change the, the the military balance, whether it's between the U.S. and China or China and, and a Taiwan con- contingency, it's really hard to define that. And so in a sense, the, the, what U.S. is trying to do is solve for the future potential of China, for example, or Russia or other countries to develop uh, an advanced AI capability that somehow proves to be a game changer. So it's a little bit novel use um, in that sense of, of export control. Now, GPUs and other advanced compute capabilities, for example, can be used in high-performance computing to accelerate, for example, their um, model development for weapon systems. And so that's, sure. that's a more a more tangible use. But the vast majority of generative AI is not used for that. So generative AI is sort of a different ballgame. Generative AI, for the most part, the applications are 
civilian in nature, right? Drug discovery, better understanding of, you know, mapping data or environmental data. I mean, all sorts of applications that, that are not necessarily, you know, clearly jump out at you as military. So it's, it's tricky in the sense that the U.S. is pursuing these controls uh, on, on the hardware with this, this long-term goal of preventing the emergence of AI in China as some sort of military you know, force. And then the, the, the other piece of it is investment in those, in those sectors, not just AI, but other things like semiconductors, of course, and quantum. Uh, and just today, before I got on this call, uh, um, the, the, the U.S. government released this new draft executive order, uh, or executive order and, and, and a proposed rule that would control the investment uh, by U.S. persons and U.S. companies, for example, venture capital and, and, and uh, private equity, into companies in China that are in these critical technology areas. AI, interestingly, is is a little more undeveloped in terms of how those controls are going to work than semiconductors because there are existing export controls that that, uh, that the outbound investment will seek to align with. Right. But AI is, you know, software. So U.S. officials talk about not trying to control all software, but very specific applications of AI, right? Like surveillance, sure. facial recognition, um, and those kinds of areas where there's a clear link to to some activity that the U.S. considers of national security import. But again, they're seeking feedback over the next three to six months around this rule to try to really keep it narrow and focused on military and sort of applications like surveillance that are considered to be important. So we're sort of in a new era where AI is now the... Um, you know, part part of the learning process of how how the U.S. and other Western allies will control China's access to to this critical technology and try to do it in a narrow and targeted way. But that's going to be difficult to keep narrow and targeted because of these other broader applications of AI uh, that are mostly civilian. The the, the 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 sort of hardware foundations of this, as you say, uh, these are the same. Whether we're talking about you know deep reinforcement learning or we're talking about generative AI. I mean, it's exactly the same gigantically networked bundles of, of, of GPUs, right? I mean, we're talking you know, trillions of connections at this point, right? Right. We're talking about 10,000 NVIDIA A100 GPUs, right. for example, that are that were used to train uh, JetGPT4. And, um, you know, these are very specialized systems that, um, that require, um, again, lots of hardware knowledge and then are very expensive to run. Um, but they're particularly, those GPUs tend to be particularly suited to large line models. So the, 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 the thing that I'm still trying to get my head around is what is, what is, very, what, what is the U.S. government concerned specifically about generative AI, which again, on the surface of it, there's, there's no clear, obvious sort of military end use. I mean, you can envision some certainly in different applications, but it's, it's still, you know, sort of an R&D phase, sure. if you will, and it's still very much um, developmental. Um, and being used primarily in China, if you look at all the different companies, they're very focused on, you know, think of coal mining, right? Huawei, Huawei's Pangu model is being used to help optimize coal mining, right? A very mundane um, but important industry, but not, you know, not uh, a military application. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I think I think the assumption is that it, it democratizes access to, you know, I mean, anyone can code, right? I mean, if you anyone who knows how to, to write a query and knows how to write prompts. It just unleashes a lot of power into a lot of hands. I, I suppose that's, yeah, that's the concern. It can certainly accelerate the development of software sure. and code, right? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but again, traditionally, the U.S., the system, export control system, and even the inbound investment system was really focused on 
on this narrow set of technologies with which a much clearer link to sort of a military end use, right. right? Particularly for weapons of mass destruction. I mean, it was that the materials were very specific to the nuclear industry, for example, or the sensors were specific to missile technology. Now we're sort of, you know, several steps back in the food chain here, looking at semiconductors, which are themselves not the problem, but what they could be used for depending on the application and the software, et cetera. There's a lot of more, more links in the chain to get to the actual military end use. And that presents a challenge then for other countries to sort of align with the U.S. on the idea that denying the most advanced GPUs, for example, to China is a way to sort of stave off a big national security problem. Um, and a lot of countries are you know, not really aligned on it seems the U.S. has already made up its mind, though. Anyway, um, it's obviously a, something that is a, a gigantic concern to people in the Chinese, you know, AI research community. What are they doing by way of of workarounds? Uh, maybe we can first talk about the move that many of them have made now. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about you know Alibaba, Ali, Alibaba Cloud, uh, and its take on on Meta's Llama system basically this it's called Tongyi Chenwen uh, uh, an open source large language model uh, is that is that part of the workaround strategy that they're going to be doing it's a great question i think there's lots of different pieces to the workaround strategy you know one is to is to for example ByteDance and others are acquiring trying to acquire large numbers of gpus um, before the commerce department might change the requirements around the performance uh, thresholds for for the the for example the Nvidia mm-hmm. GPUs. So Chinese companies can still buy A eight hundreds and H eight hundreds, which were the modified versions that Nvidia put out after the October seventh controls. And so ByteDance has put in a huge order for these things, right? So one one strategy is to let's stock up as much as we can on the existing hardware. Right. And then um, the second one will probably be you know acquiring these restricted semiconductors through, you know, lots of different channels, right? Getting around export controls, using front companies, et cetera. That will probably be, is already probably going on because, you know, these are, in some cases you can go on online and buy these, right? The bigger systems that incorporate dozens or hundreds of processors are going to be much harder to acquire, but smaller numbers can be acquired. And then the other approach is to use alternative indigenously developed uh, capability. So, for example, Huawei is using its Ascend processors mm-hmm. that it developed on its own. Those were originally manufactured at TSMC before Huawei was restricted from using TSMC. They're they're probably going to be using um, you know domestic players like like SMIC to, to continue to manufacture those. But they advertise their, for example, their their AI stack for generative AI as including being trained on the Ascend processor, and they have enough of those. The, the, of the existing generation to, to, to do a pretty good job of training their large language models. And so company, this is just, and this is happening in the West too. Companies have their own processor. They're optimizing for their own hardware to train models, et cetera, et cetera. Google's doing this, of course, with, with uh, products like TensorFlow. And Baidu has the same thing. Baidu has Kunlun, which is its processor. So that's that's one way around that is bundling, you know, maybe larger numbers as right. not as efficient as having the 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 um the uh, access to the latest stuff, but you can still do a pretty good job of training these large language models. Um, and then the third way is, interestingly, as you noted, Baidu and Alibaba are allowing Llama, this meta open sourced model, to be to be accessed from their cloud services. Oh, I see. Now this is interesting because I'm still wondering what how the Chinese regulators will view this and whether they'll you know that that will be 
uh, something that requires a license eventually. Because again, back to the regulation issue, CAC is going to come up with a licensing arrangement around these models. So they have some visibility into into what these models are doing. So it's actually Llama. It's not, it's they're accessing Llama through their cloud, not actually building a cloud-based. Yes. Yes. This is open source okay. model. So so they're, they're, it's, it's this model as a service. So uh, the big players, particularly Baidu and Alibaba, are offering large language models as a service. So you, again, access through the cloud, an API, you can access these models and then develop, sort of propri- use your own proprietary data. These are, these are private cloud or hybrid cloud. You can develop your own private application using your own proprietary data using one of these models. And so in a sense, that's a, that's a pretty important way of sort of a workaround because those models were developed in the in by Meta using you know their large compute capabilities and so you can access those to train them on your own data. It's an important ability. And, and right now, I should say the U.S. government is probably thinking about how do we control open sourcing of large language models like that because that's that's sort of a little bit of a loophole, right? Where Chinese companies don't have to rely only on their own domestically de- developed models. But the, but the, the game now is for large cloud providers to provide access to these models, license access, help companies develop their own uh, sort of enterprise model, and then, then charge for the service. That's sort of how you make money off these things. Huawei, for example, has has a, a set of, of, of large language models that are optimized for mining, as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, uh, meteorology, called Pen- Pengu Weather, railway, you know, monitoring whale, railway traffic, and things like drugs, drug discovery. So each of the big players in China is is specializing in developing um, models that are optimized for particular industry verticals. And, and this is something that you had anticipated. I, I remember, you know, you had written something uh, in Digital China right after the draft regs came out, and you had said that you yeah, anticipate what? that that would be the direction that Chinese companies would take, that they would focus on industry verticals rather than, you know, doing these big general purpose agents like ChatGPT. So give me some examples. I mean, you've just mentioned a few. I, that's very interesting. Mining, meteorology. Uh, what what are some of the applications of generative AI to specific databases? Um, I mean, what, what, what would it look like? I mean, like you mentioned meteorology. How would that play i mean what 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 does it do in in practice well it, 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 in the case of um for example of always kangoo weather it they it they claim that it's, it has it, it outperforms sort of standard models in, in terms of accuracy for weather forecasting right so so you're applying you know it sort of speeds up the ability to do forecasting predicting the trajectory of typhoons i i wonder if it predict, predicted the trajectory of the recent typhoons that hit china in, in a big way um, so there, so these are, you know, they're, they're being, these models now are trained and can, can, can plow through data much faster. And so, for example, what took 10 days now using these models can, can, they can get the predictability down to, to four or five hours. So it's sort of optimizing the ability to crunch through a lot of data as the, with specific models that are optimized for a particular data set. Baidu, for example, is another interesting case where they have, they have the Ernie sort of big model, which is, um, you know, sort of an, an analog of ChatGPT. And then they have also what they call the information distribution big model, transportation big model, and energy hmm. big model. So those are those are what they're, so they're selling this, these now as a service. So if you're an energy company, you can come in, you might have a particular, um, you know, data center issue that you want to optimize the use of energy in that data center. And you can use these large language models to crunch the, the proprietary data that you already have 
um, in, in, in that sector and then develop uh, sort of solutions that optimize something like, you know, energy use in the data center. So that, that's the way that the Chinese companies are, are thinking about um, doing that. So, so Paul, yeah. let, let me understand. Let me understand. So this means, you know, I mean, I, I suppose part of it is just the ability to use natural language, just sort of ordinary, you know, uh, language to prompt or to query uh, and, and to pull kind of useful information out of these unwieldy, yes, yes. unstructured data sets, right? Okay, okay. Right. Right, let me give you another another good example. And this is coming from, from a, 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 a large U.S. company, but this is the kind of thing the Chinese companies are doing too. They're, you're, they're assembling and training a version of chat GPT, for example, for on huge data sets related to weather data and, uh, and rainfall data and sort of mapping data in a, in a proprietary context. And then researchers who may not be experts on these in this area can go in and query using, you know, normal human, fairly straightforward queries and can, and, and the model will generate, it's a multimodal model and it can generate text and images related to that specific query. And normally these things are, these kinds of databases are only accessible to, to specialist researchers. But here now you're sort of opening the aperture in terms of who can access these kinds of data sets in a more sort of natural you know, interrogation using the front end of something like ChatGPT that people are now more familiar with, as you've seen. And you've seen, you know, companies now, there are whole companies that are coming up with, here's optimized queries. Here's, you know, here's, here are the types right. of queries you can use uh, for example, to optimize your 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 output, I used this actually just recently. To I wrote an email and I and I wrote it and I asked ChatGPT, for example, to to make it you know more um, deferential to the to the the person I was writing the letter to to, to make sure that I wasn't you know being too too sort of um, you know passive aggressive. I said and it, it did a great job of doing that. So maybe use that on your tweets from now on, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I, I need to run my tweets all, all through, through JetCP. Bard actually is my new favorite. Um, is my new favorite. Uh, Bard is very good because it's up to date, whereas ChatGPT uh, for the training data ended in September of two thousand one or twenty twenty one. Ah, right, right, right. Hey, so so do Chinese companies though? Do they lose yeah. out? I mean, I I see the the appeal of using. I mean, there's for for very many reasons for focusing on on discrete industry verticals, but. Don't they lose out on something by not going after general purpose tools? I mean, right. you know, five years, well, 10 years from now, are Chinese tech companies going to be at a huge disadvantage because they didn't pursue the general purpose technologies? It's a good question. And I think it depends on how this evolves. I mean, in the, in the West, you know, in the sort of outside of China, the thinking is that at some point, these general models, you know, they'll be sort of become your personal assistant, right? So you'll you'll have your your sort of, individual model that's sort of trained on, on your own data understands you and can be sort of optimized to respond to your needs. And, you know, again, the revenue model there is still not clear to me. I mean, you know, I'm paying $20 a month for ChatGPT and I use it all the time. Yeah, me too. And, but I think in the West, the general, the, the general models will be have become important for sort of individual use. And then also as a window into some of these more specialized areas, right? Like, so you'll, you'll be, as people get used to interacting with these chat models, then if you need something that's more detailed, you'll, you can call, you know, they'll, they'll be linked to other more, more narrow and detailed types of applications like AlphaFold even. I mean, AlphaFold could be something that, you know, you're, you're doing research and then all of a sudden you, you might want to take a look at, at some scientific problem and then you might use your, your sort of chat GPT and your general interface to, to interact with that. So yes, in China, I think eventually 
the, the you know once <laughs> once the regulations are clear, right? I mean, again, I think that Chinese companies are being careful here not to get out in front of the regulators because this is such a potentially explosive <laughs> political alignment problem for those companies. So I think once once CAC figures out how to license these things, and then as companies get more adept at this reinforcement learning through human feedback, which is how they put guardrails on this, U- U.S. companies are doing this too. I'm sure that the Chinese companies like Baidu in particular that has ErnieBot, which is really a, probably the the most capable challenger of something like ChatGPT, uh, that's done very well in benchmarks, by the way, in comparison to ChatGPT. Hmm. Um, that will become something that eventually will probably see wider use because there is a demand for that, right? When 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 ChatGPT went up, a lot of people got you know U.S. phone numbers and VPNs and were accessing ChatGPT from China, even though OpenAI tried right, to restrict right. you know that geographically geofence that. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of interest in China in these kinds of capabilities, but because of the political alignment problem, the companies are trying to you know get down the sort of non-sensitive applications and and you know models, and then eventually I think that there'll be a more a more general development of general models that are more more usable by the public once the regulatory system has has is a little bit more firm, so they don't want to run afoul of things and and uh, before you know that happens. So. Uh, I think they're working, they'll, and they'll work closely with the regulators to try to try to um, you know make sure that they don't they don't get ahead of the game. So, for the benefit of my listeners here, I, I mean, I know that during the course of this conversation, we've name checked a lot of companies and talked about you know what they're doing about their their general sort of uh, strategy uh, and some of the novel things that that they've been pursuing. Maybe we can put it all in one place and do it a little more systematically and just kind of go through company by company. Let's go. I mean, here are the companies. Let's let's do Alibaba, obviously, Tencent, Baidu, um, Huawei, uh, ByteDance. I think we, we've named that's that's maybe, you know, that, that, that's a good enough start. Why don't we start with Alibaba? We've already talked a little bit about how uh, they're making, you know, Llama, Meta's really? Llama available through the Alibaba cloud. What else are they doing? What what I mean, they've got. They bring a lot of assets to this. Obviously, they have all that payment data. They have all that purchase data. Uh, so, what are they doing? Yeah, with I that? think it's important in general to note that that each of the companies that has aspirations in this space, you know, brings advantages. So, Alibaba, as you rightly point out, brings, for example, lots of logistics data uh, to the to, so they right, can, right, right. So their 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 verticals that they'll be focused on will likely include um, things like um, logistics, also, of course, payments, uh, payment systems. Um, and then um, other areas like, um, uh, some, you know, they've been working, for example, already with some industry verticals um, as part of you know, their Ali Cloud offering. And they also have Ali Cloud, right? They, they have a sort of advantage um, uh, in terms of, you know, being a cloud services provider because that's important um, in a way that, um, you know, some of the other players like ByteDance is, is not really a cloud services provider. They have a very specialized thing. So in, the, in, in general, globally, companies... That are developing models are partnering, of course, with cloud services providers. That's why Microsoft and OpenAI, for example, are partnered in Google um, and um, and in Inflection um, or Anthropic. Sorry, Anthropic. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of there's so so companies are sort of playing to their strengths. So Alibaba again is um, also has that has things like um, its its own um, Dalma Academy, and they're they're doing a lot with developing a sort of a broader hardware. And software stack for AI development, um, and so generative AI sort of fits into that model. Um, 
Baidu, as I as I noted, is also you know has its advantages. It has a twenty years of search data in Chinese, right? Um, and so yeah. they're very much focused on these on on that's that's where they where something like why Bernie Bot probably is so good because it's trained on ninety eight percent you know Chinese language, um, and they're claiming that it has you know unique ability to tease out uh, insights in terms of Chinese language. It's always Baidu's line. Yeah. <laughs> Huawei is a little bit different in the sense that they're. They're they're so focused on the uh, enterprise. They say things like, "Our, you know, we don't write poems, right?" So they're this little right, classic right. comment from Huawei. Because, so they're very much focused on these in, already on these industry verticals, and that's in part, of course, because they've been since their controls on 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 you know things like telecommunications inputs and semiconductors, they've been seeking out new markets, and 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 so they've been looking at these industry verticals like automating port facilities and mining operations, and so. They're very much focused on that on that area, but they ha- they have very, their cloud services also again are very robust, and so they're offering this all through their cloud services, and they're also trying to develop a sort of full stack of development stack. So the hardware, you know, the development environment, MindSpore is, uh, for example, is Huawei's equivalent to to PyTorch and and TensorFlow, which are these really critical development environments, and MindSpore is also compatible with PyTorch, and so they're trying to figure out how to get developers, for example, in that space to develop. Um, applications using tools that they're familiar with. Um, and then Baidu has Paddle Paddle, for example, which is its sort of equivalent development environment. So it's th- the game is sort of, you know, have this full stack of development tools from hardware to development environment to large language models um, through this model model as a service that we talked about earlier. Uh, and so each of the companies is offering these kinds of services and then optimizing those models for those areas where it has some advantage in the, in the data space. And so again, Baidu has this transportation model and has this um, energy big model and uh, along, along with the, um, with, uh, with the, the, the Ernie bot. And then Huawei has these very specific areas, meteorology, mining, railway, and drugs. And they're, they're just, they've just expanded um, into government finance and manufacturing. And hmm. they're offering, you know, specialized versions of, uh, of, for example, of Pangu in those sectors. And so that's the trend you're going to see. ByteDance, I'm, it's not clear to me. You know, ByteDance is uh, has a lot of data, obviously. Yeah. Um, from from social media and from all all the interactions, including a lot of video. Um, and so how they're going to you know leverage and this AI, the generative AI trend here. They already have a very well developed, of course, algorithms for for recommending sure um, like minded content. So that so it's not clear to me how they're going to play in this in the same way as those other companies which are filters and things like that yeah yeah i mean sure i'm sure they'll develop capabilities that that further their business model you know using generative yeah. ai but these other but Huawei, baidu tencent alibaba these are companies that are trying to to figure out how to you know leverage their their underlying data sets and their and their ai expertise in developing large language models to actually you know service uh clients in these in these industry verticals what about companies like Meituan, do you, are you aware of them doing much, or, or, or uh, you know, an Alibaba competitor you know, like uh, Pinduoduo or, or JD? Yeah, I think Meituan. There, all the, all of the, a lot of the big companies, uh, Meituan is, is is part of this. Have, have also announced that they're working on large language models. But you know, they're the question that, that for China is, is it, 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 and similar in the U.S. is you know how many large, how many individual models are sort of needed. Um, uh, cause you have, you know, you know, a fairly large number of, I think in China, it's now 180 or something. And there's a, there's a, there's a large number. If you look across the, all of the companies and some of the research institutes at Tsinghua 
of course, has has its own big large language model, and BAI AAI also has, you know, it's uh, WuDAO, which is which is one of the first, you know, bigger models. If you look at them, though, they're all sort of different. They have different, you know, different training sets, data sets, different, you know, different um, ability to to be deployed. Part of part of the game too is is that you want to, you know, these big large language models are they're expensive to to train, and then they're sort of they're also con- expensive to deploy in some cases too. So so there are smaller models, for example, that are being developed that are that are again sort of niche areas that don't aren't as expensive to to develop because this is this is not a game for for <laughs> for people without you know some resources, uh, yeah. <laughs> both in terms of compute and sort of you know data center power, but also just people who understand you know talent. So there's also sort of a lot of competition to to, to recruit people who understand these models and how to deploy them in a sort of enterprise uh, context, for example. So. Yeah. yeah, so let's move on and, and talk about. We've talked a lot about hardware and software, mm-hmm. um, but let's let's talk about talent, as you what? say. Um, you know, what's your sense of how China is faring in that regard? Because I think a few years ago, it's fair to say the consensus would have been that you know China was awash in kind of right. mid-level coders, uh, but the really innovative AI scientists were pretty far, few and far between. But that seems to be changing too. At least to look at the the, the names and the major. Uh, peer-reviewed papers that are being published. Yeah, and that, that's a it's a really that's a tricky tricky topic. Sort of, yeah. How does China stack up on the talent side? You can look at things like the top one percent of cited papers, and that's certainly an area where, if you look at that over the last five years, you know Chinese researchers and uh, working for companies and for and for key state-owned labs, for example, have really have moved up in the specific areas, particularly for things like image recognition so there's you know there's a faint there's a, a one of the major papers that all that that all uh, subsequent research on sort of image recognition references is a paper that's in top one percent where the where it's coming out of china all the researchers are, are from china from different different organizations um and so 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 sort of um from that that perspective you know china has come from say 10 years ago to being to being really um critical chinese researchers in these key areas but particularly for these niche areas like like recognition and now natural language processing, and, and the quality of the education system, of course, in China is, is hugely improved. And so, when I talk to people in China, for example, who are recruiting software engineers to work on important AI projects in, at commercial companies, they're blown away, for example, by the the quality of the talent they're seeing at second and third tier universities in China. Um, hmm. All the second and third tier. Yeah. So, like everybody knows about you know Tsinghua and Beida, and uh, but we're talking about like you know. Um, Huajiang University, maybe in, in, in Wuhan, and universities like Zhongshan University in, in, in Guangzhou. So, second, the, you know, you know that the, the, the China's education is very tiered, right? And everybody else gets the sure. top five schools. But the, but they're they're recruiting at these at these second and third tier um, universities and finding that the software talent is every bit as good as as at top top universities. So, I think that speaks to the idea that over time, for example. China is going to have a big advantage in terms of personnel um, that are they, that you know, and sort of the, the talent pool that's going to be available to help drive forward innovation in this uh, in this sector, including in generative AI. U.S. of course universities remain extremely desirable for for foreign students to come and study at, um, and companies like Google, of course, uh, and, and DeepMind and, um, and and AWS and, and Microsoft are are also hiring uh, large amounts of really capable people. I think that the challenge will be as the U.S.-China relations get tenser, and those you know that we avoid some sort of bifurcation 
um, in in the AI space, because as you know, there's so, there's been so much collaboration um, in AI, and and a lot of uh, the Chinese leading Chinese AI uh, scientists, for example, and and company presidents came out of things like Microsoft Research Asia, where they were trained, or they went to university in the in the U.S. and and then they went back to China. So there's been a tremendous amount of cross fertilization between um, the sectors and the education systems on, on AI. And so we want to, but this has benefited everybody. Um, and so it's one of the things we want to try to, I think, to avoid, um, you know, decoupling, for example, in that sector. That's right. And that's actually what I wanted to ask you about to, to wrap this up. We are seeing this sort of movement toward a bifurcation, as unfortunate as it, as it is. Maybe, Paul, you could spell out what some of the other costs of that are, not just to this this you know wonderful period of collaboration and and cross pollination, uh, but you know what what else is going to what, what dangers are posed by the kind of decoupled world of parallel AI platforms? What are we what are we losing as we move toward that? It's a it's a great question. Well, I think it, fundamentally, I think that the sort of free freer flow of personnel and back and forth between you know Chinese companies, U.S. companies, researchers has really been of such huge benefit to the whole sector that any sort of separation there is going to be tough for example for u.s companies you know if they if they can't um recruit and retain um leading software engineers from china right and so yeah, u.s immigration law for example is so so um you know in need of, of reform h1b all, all these areas that have been sort of neglected and then of course we have the sort of a more hostile environment in the u.s caused by things like the china initiative um, and so over time, if the U.S. becomes, um, you know, a more hostile environment for AI researchers, um, and, and we saw during the pandemic, for example, people unwilling to travel to the U.S., even after the pandemic, some of the conferences that were held in the U.S., leading AI conferences, you know, much less um, attendance from China. And if you remember, just four years ago, um, one of the leading uh, conferences, Newer, and, and Newer IPS, you know, they, 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 it was held during the Chinese New Year and they moved it because, because of the attendance of Chinese <laughs> researchers right. was considered so important. It's hard to imagine that happening now, unfortunately, right? Because now there, there's a reluctance on, on both sides, I think, to sort of to pursue some of the, some of the collaboration that's happened in the past. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is all this is happening within a huge debate about how to regulate AI in the EU, in the US, and of course in China, as we, as we talked about. And so, there is general sense that you know there needs to be some, ideally, some international global cooperation on this uh, around things like standards for watermarking content, right? I mean, if if we get into a world where we have a very different regulatory environment in China versus the rest of the world, and Chinese companies are leading the development in some of these areas, it's going to be really a suboptimal in terms of, of attempting to regulate AI and the spread of AI more globally into. The global south and other places other applications right so i think there's a huge a huge need to include chinese companies and and, and chinese regulatory authorities in the, the global debate about how to regulate this industry because other than the us and you know canada is a big player and you have some other small players china's the by far the biggest player um in in this space globally and absolutely so if you're going to leave out like half the you know half the uh, half the world on on ai that's bad because then well, U.S. and from a U.S. national security perspective, for example, you don't want to, you don't want to lose lose insight into what's happening in China, and so the Chinese right. have a black box on AI. That would be really bad. Um, and then the surprises that people are worried about, you know, would become more more likely because 
we wouldn't, you know, the, the, the communities wouldn't be exchanging things. Right now, it's, it's hard to, to see a surprise in AI that, for example, um, is a huge military benefit because, because uh, everybody sort of, there's a lot of interaction and people know where things are developed and nobody's going off in secret and isolated from the, the broader community and trying to develop some, some AI capability that's nefarious. Right now, it's all, it's, you know, it's sort of out in the open. People are publishing. But as people stop publishing because of these sensitivities, for example, and people stop making things available open source, for example, then you, and you're going to get into a very w scary world where n nobody knows what the other side is doing. And, and then, you know, that, that can lead to bad outcomes. It's really good. An argument against walling off from a national security perspective. And, you know, we do need to take the national security concerns very seriously. Uh, thank you so much, Paul. I mean, it's, it's, it's great that you could join me again and take time out of what was a very, very busy day for you. Let's move on to recommendations. First, a quick couple of reminders. First, don't forget that our next China conference is in New York on November 2nd. It's an amazing event space. It's going to be a delight. You can get tickets now. Um, it, we've got amazing speakers lined up, just deep and very thinky panels, uh, Yasheng Huang is going to be keynoting. It's going to be amazing. Uh, there's going to be some deep dive breakout sessions on very, very important topics, including on, you know, a couple of technology related topics. We're even going to do a game show, which is going to be just splendid. I'm going to be hosting that at the end of the day. Um, I am also going to be taping a Seneca Live along with Jeremy on the evening of November 1st in New York. So if you get your uh, VIP tickets for that, you can attend that as well. Sign up for that and make sure to do that. That'll be fun. I'll look forward to seeing a lot of you in New York. And if you can't come to our conference, but you still want to support the work that we do, as always, please take a moment and become an Access member of the China Project. You get our daily dispatch, uh, this excellent newsletter. You get early access to Seneca most weeks. Not, you know, sorry, I've been lapsing a little bit recently because I've been on holiday. Um, and, you know, much more. It's all for the cost of what, like three, four cups of coffee a month. All right. On to recommendations. Paul, what do you have for us, man? Okay. Well, um, I got a couple things. One is sort of along the lines we've been talking about. I think um, the alignment problem, which is um, uh, by Brian Christian, talks about machine learning and human values and talks about the sort of mm. broader issue of, you know, how to align the development of AI with um with uh, you know, with human development, I think it's a very thoughtful treatment um, of the of the topic. Um, and it's really a book, is, or, or... Is, is pretty amazing. I also recommend a trilogy of books, actually, by Larry McMurtry, the Lonesome Dove trilogy. I love it. I love it. Um, I guess it's actually a tetralogy. Um, in particular, Comanche Comanche Moon, which is I think the second book, which just gives, is an amazing look at the sort of American Southwest. Um, in in the last century or I guess in the 19th century um, and just gives you yeah. an amazing I, I absolutely loved Lonesome Dove I haven't read the others in the trilogy yeah but they I'll made there was those. a they made a film of it but I think the um, the books are really rich in terms of you know uh, along with Cormac Mac Mac McCarthy which is the other one I recommend Blood Meridian of course which is similar, sort of a similar I, line my favorite novel another novel my favorite novel amazing. of all time yeah. um, so I think you know I've just been lately interested in that period of the U.S. history, which I think is very important. Um, and, and Oh, that's that's amazing, yeah. You, uh, there's some, some good Westerns that have shown up on streaming services recently. I saw one called Hostiles, which is pretty good. Uh, yeah, I think the Western 
genre has sort of returned to some <laughs> level of, of, of interest. But but I think there's been new research too that's gone on, you know, about that period um, and, and how, you know, the U.S. dealt with things like um, large, the large Indian populations in the West um, and how they interacted, which I think were really quite interesting. Um, and so I think that's excellent. That's an area. So lots of tech, I could recommend a lot more other tech books, but I won't do that since we've talked so much about AI. Yeah, we'll have you on again and you can recommend some more. Excellent. Um, uh, my recommendation for the week is just the third and final season, actually the whole, the whole, the whole show, but the third season of the HBO show, The Righteous Gemstones, uh, just concluded. It stars the inimitable John Goodman as a megachurch minister with through three truly awful adult children. Uh, so it's sort of like a, a more farcical, like over-the-top succession uh, because, you know, that's also the issue, sort of who succeeds him uh, at the head of the church. It's it's very, very funny. You might think that maybe Bible-thumping charlatans are a, too easy a target for, you know, really effective satire, but this is really funny. Uh, it'll keep surprising you. It's, it's, it's actually quite inventive. Uh, Walton Goggins stars in uh, a bunch of episodes in the last two seasons of it. And I, he's always, anything he touches is just great. Um, so, yeah, that, a show for you. And uh, the other one I, I would recommend is um, on Hulu, they have the sort of uh, reboot of one of my favorite shows of old, Justified. It's called, uh, it's, it's, you know, something written originally, a character created by Elmore Leonard. Uh, and taken from some of his short stories, Fire in the Hall, and this one called City Primeval. So this stars oh. Timothy Oliphant, who's just amazing. Uh, and so he's so cool. And so, you know, he's sly and cool and, and charming. Uh, just such a winning character in Raylan Givens, the character that he plays. So, yeah, check those shows out, The Righteous Gemstones and Justified City Primeval. Cool. All right, Paul, great to have you on again, man. My pleasure, Kaiser. I always um, enjoy our discussions. Commend the podcast for being doing such a good job in general and you. Thanks so much, man. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Seater, as it's now called, or on Facebook at The China Project. And uh, be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.